Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, and at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And the whole church said, Amen. Let's pray. God, this morning, give us a glimpse of your passion and compassion, courage, humility, willingness to see the other. God, thank you for this family, and I pray over the next few minutes that we would just keep coming back to the Savior who emptied himself to love others. It's through Christ we pray. Amen. I'm excited to be here sharing this morning with you. Josh is probably even more excited because he's on a vacation with his wife, so we're glad that Josh and Casey are getting a break. And we are talking about uh, this, some different core things, some uh, values that unite us, and Josh has hit a several of those over the past few weeks. And so this morning, I just want to talk about one, one's value, and it's not really what we do, it's more how we do it. Tuesday, February 1st, 1968, Echo Cole and Robert Walker were two Memphis sanitation workers who were killed while on the job. A lot of you know this story better than I. Some of you lived in this city, and I did not. You lived through it, and I'd love to hear your stories. But evidently, that was the climax of a pretty bitter uh, battle uh, where sanitation workers were saying they needed more sanitary conditions or pay for overtime. And so 11 days later, most of the sanitation workers in Memphis walked off the job. An estimated 700 of the 1,300 workers that were employed by the city of Memphis to pick up trash left the job. Caused a lot of controversy, caused a lot of chaos, and it began three months of chaos in Memphis that probably has still never been paralleled or equaled in this city. It led to Thursday, April the 4th, which is probably a defining day as much as any in the city. And it's the day that Martin Luther King walked outside his balcony in room 306 at the Lorraine Motel. He was here because he was advocating for the sanitation workers. There was a strike happening, and he had already been once, and that strike had turned into a riot, and he had come back. He had just given the mountaintop speech the night before at the Mason Temple, And he walked out onto that balcony, and James Earl Ray shot him with a sniper. A few weeks later, the sanitation strike ended. Conditions were improved. But within that sanitation strike, within that movement, there was a a genius motto that was adopted. If you go to the next slide. And anytime, anywhere, 
maybe for sure in Memphis, maybe in the United States, possibly around the world, when they see this sign, there are certain emotions that grab hold of the heart and the mind and the imagination. And I think the city leaders, when they were confronted with this idea that you're not just dealing with a striker, you're not just dealing with a union man, you're not just dealing with a black man, you're not just dealing with a garbage man, you're dealing with a man. When you're forced to face that this person in front of you that is at odds with you, that that's a, a person, if you're a person of faith, there's some things that just come along with it. And you're forced to think about the dignity that's inherent in that person. And you see that they have and carry with them the image of God. And I think that's the, the power in I am a man. And that's the first thing I want to say about side by side. It's how we serve when we go and we serve and we do things. If you go to the next slide, how we go is we see the image of God in every single person. And Jesus, he, he came close to humanity. He became one of us. He moved into the neighborhood, John 1.14 says in another version. And so as we go, just like city leaders were confronted with this, I am a man, we have to see past all the different categories and all the different identities that people put on each other and the divisions that we have. And we say, you're a person and I'm a person and we're equal. And Jesus leveled the playing field when he came. Another story about another person that taught me a lot about dignity. If you go to the next slide. Some of you met Marvin just over six years ago when my wife and I and our, at that time, four children, now five, moved into Binghampton. There was a guy who came and sat in front of our house uh, every Saturday afternoon, and it started getting really hot, and so we offered him some lemonade because we're nice people, and that's what nice people do. So we walked down, and Marvin would sit on the corner, and he had his friends, he called them, and there was a, a church on the corner that had a Saturday afternoon worship service. And some of his friends would come and they would help him make, make ends meet through the rest of the week. Well, <clears throat> we started to get to know Marvin a little bit. If uh, Otis, if Mayberry has an Otis, Binghampton had Marvin. And uh, Marvin was always uh, in high spirits and on lots of different levels. And as we started to get to know his story, it was, it was pretty heartbreaking. Generally, systemically neglected and abandoned. Made a lot of bad choices out of those circumstances when other people didn't. But God hooked on drugs, was being raised in Chicago, uh, to feed his addiction, turned to whatever would make money, had a pretty long run as a prostitute in Chicago, he would dress as a woman. Eventually, he came to Memphis and was uh, introduced to Jesus in a new and a special way. And he came to Christ. He told me and Stacy that Jesus saved me from the dress. That's what he would say. <laughs> and as we got to know Marvin, he became less that guy that has all those issues. And trust me, Marvin... Never lost his, he never lost all the issues. But he never became, he stopped becoming that guy and he just became 
our friend, he deemed himself Uncle Marvin uh, to our kids, who half the time would call him Uncle Marvin, but half the time were scared of him. And uh, he started to come over and hang out on our, house, on our front porch on Saturday afternoons. And getting to know Marvin, we got to know um, that he had a lot of talents, and he had this really beautiful side and uh, pace of life where he was available for people, and he really cared deeply for people. Uh, Marvin played the piano in multiple churches on the same Sunday morning in different parts of Memphis. So he was kind of a hired gun uh, for uh, several churches, which was pretty cool. And he also crocheted, which is a skill set I've never possessed. And so this is Marvin holding a potholder right here. Marvin's been to Sycamore View. If you were here uh, probably three, four years ago, and you heard an amen that would put Tim Murray to shame with how loud Marvin was, uh, then you heard Marvin. He sat back here with us. Marvin passed away a couple years ago from cancer. But Marvin used his gift to bless people, and he started sewing, he crocheted blankets as well. And when uh, he made us our favorite crocheted blanket at home, I meant to bring it this morning, And when Zoe came into our lives, uh, he decided that it would be really neat if Stacy and Zoe had matching crocheted berets. So with permission, I've wanted to show you this picture. Stacy said it's okay. It's not her favorite picture. (laughs) But Marvin made those little mushroom top (laughs) hats. (laughs) They don't go out of the house with those on much. One time, Marvin, he had a lot of sayings. He would always want to know what we were eating. And whatever we would eat, he would always say, you white people don't put enough salt on your food, no matter what it was or how salty it was. And then the second thing he would say, he had had long passed having had teeth or dentures of any kind. And so if we were having chicken, he'd always say, I can't eat that. I ain't got no teeth. So every week he'd remind us that he ain't got no teeth, which we knew he had no teeth. But we were going to have some fish, some soft fish. And he designed the menu, and it was going to be a special night because we spent a lot of time with with Marvin on the front porch, but you never knew what you were going to get. Mental illness with still a struggling alcohol addiction um, with all those streets and uh, uh, memories of the streets and experiences. We called him Marvelous Marvin, but in reality, Marvin wasn't always super marvelous. And so we had this one Saturday night uh, dinner planned, and the kids, we had prepped them. You never know what Uncle Marvin is going to do in front of you guys. You've seen him do some kind of crazy things, but he's coming over for dinner on Saturday night. So the kids were all excited, and we had the table set. This was going to be a nice dinner with soft fish. And we, it was, we were supposed to eat about six or seven, and we waited. Marvin didn't show up. We waited a few more minutes. The kids were waiting around. They were hungry. After about 15 minutes, Marvin did show up. But Marvin wasn't marvelous on that day. Uh, Marvin was what we call sloppy drunk. He was angry. And he came, and he stood on the front porch, and he said lots of words that I can't repeat here. 
And I don't know what he was upset about. I just knew his, his spirit was really troubled. <clears throat> we went ahead and let the kids eat. Um, we brought some food out later to, to Marvin after like an hour. He had finally kind of calmed down, but not really become him true, his true self. And he ate. He said there's not enough salt on it. <laughs> and then he walked away, and, and God just spoke to me in that moment um, because there's so much of this us and them and we and they in this world. And I felt like the Holy Spirit just had this moment with me on my front porch when he said, Jim, this is this thing with you and Marvin right now. This is, this is me and you, and you can figure out which one God is <laughs> and which one is Marvin in the, in the story or which one is Jim. <clears throat> And I think there's something about how Jesus coming down and becoming one of us and loving us, dying for us, it it levels this playing field in such an incredible way. And when we choose to serve others and we choose to to serve them side by side, like I said, it's no longer us, them. It's just us and him. Really, there's just, there's two categories there's uh, you're either Jesus or you're not. And everybody who's not, everybody that's in that second category, we're all kind of the sloppy drunk showing up, throwing F-bombs at the front porch for dinner. Disappointing each other, disappointing God time and time again. And yet at the cross, we are given this incredible dignity to rise above that and as a community become more than we are without each other. And so... We don't have to insist that other people have to become just like us because guess what? We're all on the same playing field. And I'm not talking about beliefs necessarily. This is not an argument against or for absolute truth or an absence thereof. I believe there are some very concrete things that have to be a part of what you believe to be able to fall in line with God. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about and really talking to is this group of people, my brothers and sisters in Christ, who a lot of times we have the answers right, and we may have feel like we have our lives together, but in reality, the gap between the most jacked-up person, as I like to say in the youth group, in this room, and the most together person in this room is that big compared to the difference between the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the righteousness that the most righteous of us brings into this room. Amen? So we don't have to insist that everybody has to be just like us or just like me because we are already just like each other in so many ways. We're broken and we're battered and we're redeemed and we're restored because Jesus made that trip and he left the comfort of heaven and he came to earth and he became one of us. Third story. When I was 14 years old, this little Nebraska boy went to Dallas. It was a big city. And I went for a week. I'd met some friends at a church camp that was on the campus of York College where I grew up. And they said, why don't you come down in a few weeks? We're going to do this thing we call Dallas Work Camp. And I have a picture not of Dallas Work Camp because photos didn't exist in the 1980s, evidently. But I do have a picture of a Memphis Work Camp crew from a couple years ago. Very similar program. And we start tomorrow. And so I remember going down. I grew up uh, in a 
very homogenous small town in Nebraska. 7,000 people, 6,999, well, 93 of them were white. We had five uh, who were Chinese. They ran the Chinese restaurant, and every three years, a different Chinese family would come in and take over the restaurant. And then we had my friend Ricky, um, who was biracial, and his dad. And that was it. That was the ethnic diversity, at least among the Anglo-Saxon Europeans in, in, the, in the group. I'm sure we had a lot of European descent, different countries. But that was the, the situation in which I grew up. And then I went to Dallas, and I was in South Dallas. And the roles were reversed. And for those of you, I'm 43 years old. For any of you that are about my age, right at the time when I went to Dallas work camp, Boys in the Hood had just come out. And it was such a great movie. And I felt like I was walking on to the set of Boys in the Hood in South Dallas. And for a while, I thought, I just felt cool. I felt like, wow, I, this is cool. This is this Nebraska guy, and I'm in the hood, and this is awesome. And totally inappropriate feelings, I'm sure. But uh, as, as we continued, um, we started scraping a house. And these three little boys, they were uh, ages eight and nine, uh, and nine. Their names were Jimmy, Charles, and Charlie. And as happens a lot of the times when we do work camp, kids in the neighborhood, they want to help paint. And as everybody who's ever painted a house knows before, little kids aren't helpful in painting. <laughs> but <clears throat> building relationship is part of it, right? So Jimmy, Charles, and Charlie came up, and they helped me paint. And they kind of stuck to me. And I, and I thought it was really neat because I, like, I had never had a friend that wasn't a white friend um, because there were only white people around me. I had met some in travels, but as far as just somebody sitting there talking to, and there was, uh, we would paint in the mor- scrape and paint in the mornings, and then in the afternoon for about an hour, the world's worst vacation Bible school ever in the history of world's uh, of vacation Bible school would occur. Uh, it was about 100 kids, a youth minister, and about five teenagers. And I was one of the five teenagers, and I don't even know why. But we would jump on this school bus, and we'd pick kids up, and then we did something. And honestly, I can't even remember anything we did, but I know we had to have sung Booster, Booster, Be a Booster, right? So we did that because it was the 80s, and we were from a Church of Christ. And so uh, we sang that, and after a couple days, Jimmy, Charles, and Charlie, they'd hop on their bikes, they'd ride up, and And we'd work together all day, and they never left my side, even at VBS. And after a couple days, I I stopped feeling like I was on a movie set. And the sensationalism of the difference kind of fell away. And it was just me and these three little guys. I kind of felt like a big brother or a cousin. And it was a magical relationship in my life. And I remember being on the bus the last day on Friday afternoon. And it was just Steve, the bus driver, the youth minister, who ran the world's worst VBS, and myself. And I would pass things. I would give, I was, it was Friday, so I was giving away a little oriental trading um, treasure uh, as people got off. And I remember Jimmy, Charles, and Charlie, this was going to be our last moment together. And I don't know if they knew it, but I knew it. And it was, it was big to me. And so they came up, and I said, okay, what do you guys want? And most kids, whatever was the biggest. It was like rulers and 
erasers and pencils and that kind of stuff. And um, I said, what do you guys want? And they said, just give us something that says Jesus on it. And even in my little 14-year-old mind, it's like, I know that VBS was terrible. <laughs> but something, something took. Something happened. And part, part of that whole story to me, part of the power of that story is that I had to go there to experience that. And I firmly believe Jesus beat me to South Dallas. And I firmly believe that Jimmy Charles and Charlie knew about Jesus before they heard me sing it in a song at VBS. But there's something special about leaving where you're at and where you're comfortable and going on to someone else's turf. And that's the third thing about side by side. We go. We don't stay. We don't collect moss. We don't stay inside the church building. We live beyond lives of isolation because we're on this mission, as the Bowers read, as Becky read, we're on this mission to say, hey, world, God is bringing all of us and all of creation and all of our beauty and all our brokenness, he's bringing it under his rule right now. And even though it doesn't feel like it, and even though it doesn't look like it, that is what happened. That's what he's doing, and that's what he's up to. And so I'm here as an ambassador of the brokenness saying, God is putting me back together. I'm part of the restoration. You are too. Let's figure out how we can do this together. There's so much in mission work and social work, if you want to call it that, just do good type stuff. There's so much us, them, we're going to go help those people. And we've got the answers and we've got the stuff. And there, we, we are not the messiahs, amen? There was one and we're not him. And so serving side by side, it might take you across the world or it might take you across the street, but the Christ presence inside you is going to be on the move. He will not sit idle. He will not be confined to the walls of this church building. In just a minute, we're going to have a a season of prayer. So if my prayer warriors uh, want to come take their spots, you can start moving toward that. Um, There's an African-American Church of Christ preacher that really well-known name, Marshall Keeble. And I don't know if this is actually his quote or not. I heard it attributed to him. But he preached for 50 years in Nashville, Middle Tennessee, and really all over the country and probably the world. And once upon a time, he was talking to some other people who were not of his tradition, his historical religious background. And he was in a at a time and a stage in history when it was pretty, you stay in your lane, you don't blur the lines. But he was calling these people brothers. And somebody said, Brother Keeble, how are you, why are you calling them brothers? They are, they are not part of the true church. And he said, well, if they, didn't, if they didn't join us at the cross, they joined us in the garden. We're all... We all have this image of God stamped on us. And we all mar it 
It's all broken. So we're all in the same boat. Side by side, to me, it seems to bring up two different crises. First, we don't feel like others are as worthy or equal to us. That's a hard issue we need to be real, real about. Second, we don't believe we are worthy of love or equal to others. And that's also a hard issue. So I don't know what God's speaking to you. I don't know where God may be sending you or calling you back to. But we have some really wonderful people in this room. We're going to sing a couple songs and pray. Uh, We have some ladies over here and in the back. If you have a prayer concern that you want to be public with, that you want to announce to the whole church, uh, Doyle Bradshaw, one of our shepherds, is here. So would you please stand with me and let's sing.